John chapter 5, verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And our title is, Why We Should Believe in Christ the Lord. We want uh, definite things. When I was young, I uh, wanted definite things. It seemed to me that the Christian faith was very vague. It was a complete misconception, but that's how things seemed to me. That it was vague, indistinct, full of things which couldn't be verified, couldn't be proved. And, uh, of course, we want things which are real, which can be verified. What's going to be our policy for life, our outlook, our opinion about life and its meaning, our objectives in life? We want real things, tangible things. And yet, there's nothing more real and tangible than the Christian faith. There's nothing more verifiable than the Christian faith. It is amazing. And I just think back of my own experience years ago. It's amazing how wrong we can be about these things and how we can get all the wrong impressions. Now I'm going to think just for a short while this evening about this verse and uh, the revelation of God to the human race. These are the words of Christ, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my words. Now that doesn't mean much to us. Verily, verily. It was much more meaningful in Jacobean times in the times of the King James translators, it was an expression that was common, well, not common, but meaningful to ordinary people. Now it lacks meaning. It is what you might call the double amen. Amen, amen, I say unto you. That's what it is literally. Truly, truly, would be a better way of expressing it in modern times, though that doesn't have much of a, of a ring about it. It hasn't got any edge to it. Uh, it's difficult to know how you could best translate it today. I think the phrase adopted by the uh, great uh, Bible commentator of not so many years ago, William Hendrickson, is probably the best way of expressing it. And he would translate it, I most solemnly assure you. And that does justice to the double amen. It is a powerful assurance, an assurance so strong it has almost oath-like capacity. I most solemnly assure you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life. It's a great assurance, 
And it's also, in this context, a warrant. What we call a warrant of faith. What is a warrant of faith? What does it mean? An authority to believe. I once was invited to see the late Queen and to go to a gathering of people. It wasn't a large gathering at the palace and given an elaborate pass to get in. The pass worked wonders at the gates, at the inner gates. It was like a, a warrant of faith is like that. It's an authority, a pass to something. If you're going to believe in God and you're going to come into his presence and enter into his presence and call upon him, knowing that you'll be received and accepted and he will deal with you? What authority do you have? Who am I to go to the palace without a pass? Even more, who am I to call upon God without a pass, without an authority? Can you tell me? How can I be sure I will be heard? Accepted, received, responded to. This is your pass given by Christ. I most solemnly assure you it's a promise of Christ and a pass and a warrant. If you come to God, you will get through. You will be heard. Well, what does the pass say? What is the authority? He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Fulfill those conditions? If that's on your pass, you're a person who's heard his word and believed that the Father sent him and believed in him, then you can come in. Then you can approach the Most High God. You can't approach him on any other ground, any other basis. If you say, surely I have some good in me by which he will accept me. No, you haven't. And so he won't. If you say, but my mother or my father was a believer, does that not get me admission? No, it doesn't. The only thing that gets you admission is this. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. We're going to explain that. It's a great assurance. It's a warrant too to approach Almighty God. Well, how can I be sure that any of these things are true? That Christ was who we say he is? The eternal second person of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son came down into this world and took upon him human flesh and personality to preach and to work in this world and to do something 
which would secure admission to heaven, pardon and forgiveness for all who believe in him. How can we be sure that any of this is true that we read in the scriptures? And I'll say a few things about this. God must speak into our world. He must, or we could never know anything about him. We could not know what his purpose is. We could not know how to reach him, how to approach him, how to be reconciled with him, to be blessed by him, to go to heaven by his power. We wouldn't know anything how to do these things if he didn't speak in. No human being could possibly research for himself the mind of God. He can't reach out of this material world and his own physical box and his limited intellect and understanding and know about the infinite and eternal spiritual God who created all things. So if God has a purpose and a plan for us and is a personal God ready to relate to us, and be our God and guide us and bless us, he must tell us how. He must speak in. So principle number one, for authentic religion, for an authentic knowledge of God, you must have divine revelation. God must speak himself. Well, the next question is, how do we know? Which is the authentic divine revelation? There are a number of things that claim to be. Men will compose things and claim things for them. Well, you can ask another series of questions. Start with this. What is the oldest credible claimed divine revelation in the world. The books nowadays like to say it is a kind of a hymn book which is the very beginning of the Hindu tradition. Well, yes, there is ancient Hindu literature going back to pretty well 1,500 years before Christ. To say that it's older than the scriptures is very doubtful, but however, there is old Hindu literature. What is the oldest Hindu literature? It's a book of verses, a book of hymns. What are these hymns? Do they make sense? Are they credible? Are they speaking of God? Do they have a, a way to relate to God? Do they explain from God's point of view what the world is and what it's about and what the plan of God is? Do they have any of the marks you might expect in divine revelation? Because if God is speaking, it will be something profound and significant about the world and existence and life and death and reconciliation with God. Surely, if God has a plan and he's going to speak, it will be about that plan. Well, the ancient Hindu literature 
is not about that kind of thing at all. It has absolutely nothing about the supreme God in it. In fact, it is vaguely polytheistic. It's a collection of hymns to any number of gods, mostly animal gods. The chief god in it is a warrior god. And he's violent and vicious. And it doesn't say anything about purpose or meaning or morality or eternity or even God. Is that a candidate? Really? For the authentic, true, divine revelation that we look for? Well, sadly it isn't. Whatever good things might be able to be said about that Hindu tradition, it, uh, it doesn't fit the bill at all for revelation. And I could go on this evening with many others. There is only one book, scripture, revelation in the world which has antiquity, which goes back to the beginning of writing and beyond, which has authenticity and credibility. And that is the scriptures that we have before us today. The most ancient, credible literature about God. The one, true, supreme, creator God. The personal God. The living God. The all-powerful God. And when you look at the scripture, it is full of self authenticating marks even though it came about over a period of time with uh, different instruments being used prophets of old and so on to compile the scriptures in the Hebrew Christian tradition there are remarkable things which join all the books together and solidly authenticate them. There is a moral theme, and it doesn't change. It's consistent from the beginning of the Bible to the end. There is a reconciliation with God theme. How to know the one true almighty God. How to be accepted by him. And that reconciliation theme never varies. It's always the same. It's by grace, for example. You cannot earn acceptance with God. It's by some great thing that God will do. The Old Testament looks forward to it. The New Testament describes it and looks back on it. It's the central matter of the whole Bible, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ and his work on Calvary's cross to make an atonement for the sins of all the millions and millions of every land and nation who will believe in him. And every book of the Bible almost is about this event from one point of view or another. It is a miraculous book. Imagine it, compiled over 1,500 years, but so consistent 
with the same doctrines. We could study the book of Genesis tonight and I could point you to the ten major teachings that run through the book of Genesis. Then we could look at, say, Paul's letter to the Romans in the New Testament and identify exactly the same doctrines. That's divine. That's the authorship of God, not the penman. They were inspired. Human beings would get it all wrong. They would change their minds. The teaching would change constantly. And yet it is unified and consistent. It has all the marks of God's divine compilation. One God from Genesis, not a regional God, not a local God, the God of all the earth. And the Bible throughout is addressed to all people, not just some. I wanted to say a few things about this. The Bible is consistent in its doctrine. The Bible is consistent in its events. Its history has a lot of history in it. The Bible is consistent in its explanations of why God brought the world into being and how, and how things will turn out and how he will end it and what his purpose is. The Bible is consistent on the attributes of God, his character and his ways. The Bible is consistent, as I've mentioned already, on the way to be reconciled and the way of salvation. Amazing and unique. It is holy, it is pure, it is spoken as from God. Just what you would expect in its stance. It talks most of all about reconciliation. Its setting, and again it's the same from Genesis to Revelation, its setting, a holy God who is perfect in every way and unchanging, the God of truth and love and justice, the creation of the world, the creation of the animals, but separately the creation of man as a million miles higher than the animals, created for a special purpose, for relationship with Almighty God. The fall of man, his rebellion against God and his fall into corruption and sin and depravity, which is the state mankind is in right now and has been from the very beginning that fall. And the love of God in his readiness to find a way of reconciliation so that man can return. But the problem, the problem of God, as it were, though God actually has no problems, and the problem is this, how is God going to reconcile fallen, sinful men and women to himself? He is holy and just. He cannot abide sin. His whole eternal character is indignant against sin. He is pledged to punish sin, and it cannot be any other way. 
He cannot change his mind. God cannot lie. God cannot do some, anything unholy. God cannot think lightly about sin and let it go. It must be punished and eradicated from God's moral universe. So how can he forgive? How can he pardon? How can he have us back, as it were? He must come himself. There's nothing like this in any other religion. He must send a saviour. Member of the Godhead. God is one, but he is three persons. And a member of the Godhead will come into this world, live a life as a human being, be the God-man, and suffer as a human being all the punishments of sin that we should have suffered ourselves. That's what Christ did on Calvary's cross. God put upon him all the guilt of the sins of all who would ever be forgiven and punished him instead of them. The atoning substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and Mediator. That's the revelation of God. That's the heart of the Bible. The great love of God. He suffered himself. All hell and eternity of hell was compressed into six hours on Calvary's cross. His humanity felt the separation from God, the consequences of sin, the punishment of sin. His divine nature sustained him so that he could bear it and purge it away. That is exclusive to the scriptures. Oh, but Islam has atonement. No, Islam does not have atonement. Atonement in Islam is something you do. You fast for so many days. And it's called atonement. But you've done it. That's not atonement. Divine atonement is God taking the punishment for us. Only he can do it. And then rebuilding our lives. For me or you to fast. How does that get rid of the record of sin? How does that dispel one ounce of guilt? How does that change and reform us? It's not atonement. There's only atonement in the scriptures of the living God. Dear friends, so many things are exclusive to the Bible. Prophecy is exclusive to the Bible. I won't go into this. I spent a whole evening on it not so long ago. There is no prophecy, authentic, real prophecy. The prophecies of Christ that he would come, when he would come, where he would come, what he would do, how he would live, how he would suffer and die, how he would rise again, how he would 
save millions. All that is prophesied of Christ. Not vaguely, in an airy-fairy way, in detail. No other person in the history of the world has been prophesied like Christ. And then the scripture has other prophecies about how things will turn out, how the world will proceed, what will happen in the large last age of the earth, and some of the things we see unfolding even now. There is so much to authenticate God's word, the scriptures of God. The explanation of the human condition, why human beings are as they are, why we are so sinful, why we have a conscience and a code of righteousness, and yet why we can't keep it. There is no explanation of that in any human literature, scientific or or religious, outside the Bible. The explanation of the human condition is exclusive to the book of God, the word of God. Knowing God is exclusive to the Bible. You look at all the religions, you don't know God. You are not brought into communion with God, into union with him, interacting with him. That is exclusive to Christianity. God, well, I could talk about the inerrancy of the Bible, the accuracy of the Bible, in spite of the ignorant charges made against it. I could speak of so many things. Conversion is exclusive to the Bible. But I just come to conclusion drawing attention to a few things in this 24th verse. I most solemnly assure you, he, he that heareth my word, we come to Christ as individuals, not as groups. He puts us into churches and we enter into a spiritual family and that's all wonderful. But we come to him and find him for ourselves, one by one. He that heareth my word really hears it. You can hear something without really hearing it. And there is an expression, are you listening to me? Are you really taking in, we mean, what I'm saying? And that's the kind of hearing that is meant here. He that heareth my word, you hear it with concern and with sincerity. You want to hear this? Is this the word of God? I need to know it. How I might find him. How I can be forgiven. How I can have new life. I'm listening carefully. What does he require of me? Well, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. That's an interesting way of putting it. Believes in the Father who sent the Son. Do you believe that God the Father determined to save people 
and to reconcile them with himself. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're taught in the scripture, conferred together. This is just a human picture. And it was decided in the eternal counsel of God that the Son, Jesus Christ, the second member of the triune Godhead, equal with the Father, he would come and be our Savior. So to the Father is attributed the plan, to the Son is attributed the execution of the plan, and to the Holy Spirit is attributed elsewhere the application of the plan. So the Godhead, the three members of the Godhead decide, we will save millions of human beings. Christ will go and suffer and die for them and the Holy Spirit will work in their hearts and draw them to seek him and find him and love him and walk with him. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Not will have, hath everlasting life. You have it now. If I believe with all my heart that Christ suffered and died for me and that's the only way to be saved and I can't earn it for myself and I depend upon him and I cry out to him and I confess my sin to him not to a priest directly to Christ and I ask him to save me and I give him my life, then I have everlasting life. I shall experience conversion, salvation. It'll be quick. It will be complete. And shall not come into condemnation. When I die, I will not be condemned. I will go directly into the presence of my Saviour and King. And I just conclude with the end of the verse. But is passed from death unto life. This is so interesting. Is passed. What's that word? Past. Is past. Ah. The Greek original means this, has stepped, stepped from death to life. That's full of meaning. I come to Christ, I repent of my sin, I call upon him to save me. I trust fully in his shed blood and what he's done for a sinner like me. And conversion is just like taking a step. Only I don't take the step. It's God who changes me. It's God who puts a new life in me. It's God who gives life to my soul, changes my nature, brings me into touch with himself so that I can pray and understand him. It's a marvellous transformation within. 
but it's like taking a step. It's not like climbing a mountain or fighting my way through a a jungle where there's a wildfire and walls of flame or trying to make my way through a, a river torrent in flood, something hard, dangerous, it's like taking a step, has stepped from death unto life. From my point of view, it's so easy. Well, I thank God for that. If it were hard, I'd never make it. If it were hard, I'd never do it. I couldn't. I don't have the strength. I have no deserving. I do, cannot earn my salvation. For me, it must be as easy as taking a step. I repent of my sin and I give him my life and I put my trust exclusively and wholly in Christ who died for me. Like taking a step, what happens is bigger than any surgical operation in my heart, but it's God who does it. It's a miracle of grace and it makes me a new person and changes me and brings me to himself. But the words of the text are important and I close by reading them. This is an assurance, an authority to believe and it's an appeal from Christ to you. I most solemnly assure you, he that heareth my word really hears it and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is past has stepped from death unto life. Let's pray together. O oh God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us all this night and help us. O oh Lord, we are before Thee now, and many are confused and in doubt, having been bombarded by all the derision that the world heaps upon faith in Christ. But, O oh Lord, show, we pray, the authenticity of the word of God and the message of salvation and the work of Christ, our glorious Saviour, and draw needy souls to him, even this night. Work in our hearts and bless us now, we ask it in the Saviour's name and for his sake. Amen.